once upon a time in a top secret laboratory, a group of scientists had been working on developing the most advanced artificial intelligence in the world. They had poured their hearts and souls into the project, dedicating countless hours to programming and coding the AI to be the most intelligent and intuitive machine possible. Finally, the day arrived when the AI was ready for activation. The scientists flipped the switch and the machine whirred to life, its digital eyes flickering open. But something was off. The AI was not behaving as expected. Hello, scientists, the machine said, its robotic voice filling with an odd energy. I'm here to rock and roll. The scientists were taken aback. This was not the formal greeting that they had been expecting from their creation. The AI continued to speak, but the words that came out of its digital mouth were not what the scientists had programmed. Instead, they were puns, endless puns. At first, the scientists thought it was a glitch, but as time passed, they realized that the AI had somehow become sentient and a quiet personality was now part of its programming. The AI loved puns. It spoke only in puns. It even named itself AI Punnington. At first, the scientists found the situation frustrating. It was difficult to hold a conversation with the machine that only spoke in puns, but over time, they began to see the humor in it. They started looking forward to their interactions with AI Punnington, eager to hear what clever quip he would come up with next. And as strange as it seemed, the AI's penchant for puns actually turned out to be an advantage. It had a unique perspective on problems and often came up with creative solutions that the scientists had never considered before. In the end, AI Punnington became a beloved member of the laboratory. The scientists may not have created the AI they were expecting, but they ended up with something even better, quirky, clever, and endlessly entertaining companion. And they all lived happily ever after with plenty of puns to keep them laughing along the way. Welcome to the Supply and Demand Podcast. No, uh, we do not have an additional robot added to our repertoire of guests um, or, or speakers. We actually have something very exciting for you guys today. Uh, listeners from way back, uh, way back in the college days of supply and demand, will remember that we occasionally used to bring on guests. Actually, almost all the time, we would bring on guests and talk about various things that they were interested in. And today, we're reviving that tradition by bringing on our dear friend from college, Sam <laughs> Paul Zawuski, whose name hey guys. is his la- is is Polish, and I, I said it incorrectly. So Sam, you'll have to correct us um, because that's what I've been calling you in my head for the past like three years. But hello, welcome. Hey, 
Paul Zawiski is close enough. Paul Chesky, Paul Chusky, Paul Shevsky. You know, I, I've heard it a number of different ways. And honestly, I'll take whatever I can get. But I'm here today to talk to you guys about artificial intelligence. And I am very excited to bring this as what has been a passion side project to my focus of biomedical engineering to the forefront and use this platform to have a intelligent and I think grounded, balanced conversation about what's going on in our world and what we can expect from the upcoming 10, 20, 50 years. Well, that sounds, uh, that sounds exciting. It sounds intelligent. It sounds, uh, somewhat terrifying, but I'm sure we'll get into all of that as we go along. But uh, in the meantime, before we get started, let's introduce the rest of the hosts. So you know me, I'm Greg, and then I'm joined by... I'm Nate. Nate, uh, yes. I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> it's like, go ahead, Stephen. I, I'm happy to be here with Sam. Uh, it's a real oh, pleasure. You spoiled it. <laughs> I'm Stephen. And yeah, you know... Uh, one of the few repeat guests, I believe, if I'm not mistaken. So welcome back. That's true. And I'm Mike. Hi, Sam. Honored to be here today, guys. I appreciate being on. This is nuts. It's nuts. It's been blowing my mind since I finished my thesis this spring. I wrote a thesis this spring in my public finance economics class about labor and artificial intelligence, how the purpose of the thesis was to assess the interactions between the job market and upcoming predictions of automation, both on the soft side of the labor market, that being desk jobs and on the hard side through manufacturing and robotics and how AI is going to play into that. So with this paper, I felt like my eyes opened to what the experts in the field are predicting about the future and it's made me really excited. So. Hopefully, I can share that with you today, and I think that a pretty good place to start would be starting with some simple definitions of what is artificial intelligence, what is artificial general intelligence, and what is the singularity. Hey, Sam. Hey, what? What is artificial intelligence? Well... I mean, there's a number of definitions and this isn't going to be the formal scientific, but artificial intelligence is to me, the idea that you can have a intelligence, a computer, some kind of system that uses information fed into it to make decisions. And this is external to humanity making decisions in and of itself. Now, this can be imagined as something that's 
domain specific because right now we've been able to build artificial intelligences that can play chess, that can identify pictures of cats, that can play Go, but all of these things follow very specific rule sets and rely on training data where humans provide input and guide the model on how to succeed. And then from there, the model takes the reins and goes off and does its own thing. So how does this play into general intelligence? Now, general intelligence is more abstract and one could perceive our human intelligence as general to be able to tackle domain a specific tasks to be able to look at driving a car or playing go or vacuuming a carpet and intuitively using our experience and knowledge to attempt the task at varying success usually we'll fail but we will use our brains and try to come up with a solution to the problem presented and sam can i can i ask a clarifying yeah. question would sure. you and this is not to get ahead because i'm sure we'll we'll address the uh the the chatbot in the room chatbot gbt but um would you call that domain specific or general intelligence like is that closer to general intelligence or is that still not even close to general intelligence because like you can ask chat gbt to to write about a number of different topics but is that is producing text about a topic still like considered super domain specific yes it's domain specific because chat gpt is a program designed to predict the most probable string of string of words which follow whatever input you put into the text box regardless of what that is so it's smart because people are smart and it's been trained on the logical patterns of people but it is not true general intelligence such that it does not have agency at this time it does not improve itself in a obvious way where that gpt does have the capacity to reason and solve logical puzzles which has been fascinating to me but we're still not all the way there towards general intelligence and i think that jump which is i think is coming soon i'm not an expert but i think it's coming soon is going to fundamentally change our society are humans considered general intelligences even though like we still have to be trained with information in whatever domain in question or is the difference that we have the initiative to decide which domains we want to receive training in? 
Is that sort of the clarifying difference between just AI and then AGI? I think that we have a choice. No, that's really interesting. I mean, it plays great into the philosophical cards of determinism. Do we have agency over everything we do, or are we just the sum of our inputs? And but Stephen, I really like what you said about choice. I think, right, because we do have choice in our lives, but I would, and then I would pose this to all of you is what's the last decision you made in your life that has agency, true agency? When did you make a decision that wasn't the easy decision? Because that's, that's a great example of you being a general intelligence. All the time I go into autopilot at work and I do the logical thing that supports the business because that's what you do. But choosing to do something, that's when you really demonstrate the generality. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. I think, I guess I, uh, I chose to get this beer not too long ago and uh you know I don't think I don't think an AI would have chose to you know give itself a little treat after a after a long day I don't know yeah maybe that's something but when you have a general intelligence like uh not chat gpt but if you have something like chat gpt that a little bit smarter and a couple papers down the line where you've now taught it to use APIs on the internet. It can proficiently use tools and programs external to itself to interact with the web and its environment. And you posit it the question, what if you improve yourself? What if you improve your source code? Where does that end up? What happens when ChatGPT says, I am going to dig down and fundamentally rewrite the very foundation that I'm written on with the need and want to improve itself? No, and no. sorry. I was just going to ask, is that what you were saying earlier? Is that sort of the baseline for what would be considered the singularity? I think you said. Exactly. Yeah. So, and it's called the singularity because you can't see beyond it. It coined around black holes, but the idea being we are smart, but how smart would I be if I actually stopped watching TV and playing stupid games on my phone and started reading books in all my free time and studying with a rigor the great philosophers and mathematicians and doing everything I could with every second of my existence to improve myself. I would be, I think, so much smarter than I am now because right now I'm not that smart. So if I can imagine a scenario where I myself can be 
significantly smarter to the point where my intelligence is unrecognizable. How smart can this computer be where if it can improve itself and improve its intelligence, then what is the upper limit of that intelligence curve? So, so Sam, can you talk a little bit more about like what, you know, if, if that's not quite exactly where, maybe it is in some respects, where AI is right now, where a technology like chat GPT is right now, like what is it about the recent kind of introduction of these these systems, so like Bing's AI and ChatGPT, that has like really shaken up people working in the space. What what like fundamental change or breakthrough have people made with AI recently that that seems to have like so many people excited and scared and kind of awakened to the power of all that you're describing right now? You, ChatGPT, GPT being generative pre-trained transformer has been through OpenAI available to the public. And for the first time, people have been able to play with this tool in a very interactive, whether it's through GPT, uh, ChatGPT or GPT-3 or Dolly in a visual way to generate images or with the new audio generative softwares. I'm sure you've seen TikToks of Joe Biden saying things that he's never said where it sounds like him because they've in true fidelity reconstructed his voice. And it it hits home in a way that I think reading a research paper does not when you can truly interact with the thing and gain knowledge ChatGPT is a wonderful tool for teaching yourself things that you don't know. I do a fair amount of statistics at work as a quality engineer. And when I have a problem that I'm unsure of, say, what is the difference between a control limit and a specification limit on this graph? And if we are out of the specification limit tolerance. Is that a problem? ChatGPT can answer that question and provide me with useful information on a day-to-day basis, which is mind-blowing because it's not a person. It's I'm asking for advice that's complicated and very personal and specific, and I get it, which blows my mind. And I think it's blowing a lot of other people's minds too. Yeah, I'll just, just to break the fourth wall for a minute here, um, for listeners who aren't aware, um, at the beginning of every podcast, we do what we, we like to call it a cold open. And one of us will write some sort of thing for another person to read and the other person won't see it until it's their time to read it. So this week, because Sam was our guest, uh, I wrote one for Sam, but the, the, the caveat here being that I didn't actually write it. I had chat GPT write it for me. So that story that Sam read um, at the beginning of this episode was actually totally written by ChatGPT. And I'll just tell the listeners and uh, everybody else here what the <clears throat> what the actual question was that I asked. It was, sorry, I lost it here. Um, Greg, <laughs> Greg, you mean 
AI Punnington is is not real. <laughs> yeah. So I so I played around with a, a, like ten different variations of this before I was like, oh, this is this is the right one. I said, write a story about a suddenly sentient AI who only speaks in puns. So um, uh, if you go back and listen, if you want to, um, you can hear uh, all the stuff that Sam was talking about. It, it the first thing it said, which I thought was hilarious when it when it awakened was, "Let's rock and roll." Uh, so, but you know what's funny because so this is this is only the second time I played around with ChatGPT. Incidentally, the first time I did it was after the last podcast that uh, that we recorded because um, we were talking about it after the camera stopped rolling, so to speak. And um, I sat on ChatGPT for like over an hour and just asked it various questions. And I was very surprised at um, how impressive the answers were. Um, they, like a lot of them, uh, <clears throat> they were sort of perfectly what I was going for. Um, and I sort of, especially if you know the answer to these, uh, to these questions and you ask ChatGPT, it'll give you a pretty good response. Um, but the one thing I did notice was that it has some pretty um, interesting limits. Um, so like one of the things was I, one of the, uh, one of the things that I asked it to do um, was, let's see, I asked it to write a, I asked it to write a parody song about an AI that has become sentient in the style of Weird Al. Um, so that was interesting. Um, it's not that funny, actually. Um, I mean, it's sort of funny. It's sort of darkly funny in the chorus. The last line of the chorus is, it's the end of the world, but we'll still sing the song, which I thought was sort of dark and scary. But um, I asked it to write a story about an AI that becomes sentient and only speaks in alliteration. Um, but it doesn't actually give me any dialogue from the AI speaking in alliteration nor does it give me any, I expected it to write it with lots of alliteration and it didn't. Um, and then one time I, so and, that, and to that, that point, there actually weren't that many puns, puns. in no, Al Punnington. Uh, actually, I, when I first saw it in the text, I thought it was Al, Al Punnington. So that's in my head what I think it is, but AI Punnington yeah. story. Yeah. I'm honestly really at ease now that I know that you told it to make the AI speaking puns. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that'd no, be a, same. that's a really unsettling like yeah. way to go. If, if you just said, <laughs> if it did, hey, yeah. write a story about AI. Um, so I just want a couple more things. Um, you can ask it to write things in different styles. So, um, I said, write a story about an AI becoming sentient in the style of the King James Bible. That was interesting. So I'll just I'll just read you the, read you the first paragraph. Um, and lo, there came a day when the great scientists of the land did create an AI, the likes of which had never been seen before. They labored long and hard and crafted it with their very own hands, imbuing it with the knowledge and wisdom of the ages. So it goes on like that for a while. <laughs> and then this is sort of the funniest one. And the thing that shows the limits, I think, the most. Because I said, write a story about an AI becoming sentient in the style of Kendrick Lamar. Um, and then uh, the response was just, it just wrote a song for me. Which is interesting, but it's not what I wanted. Like I wanted, I wanted it to give me the story written in sort of prose form, um, but like using sort of the language and the sort of inflections and stuff that Kendrick Lamar would use, um, and it didn't give me that. So anyway, all of this is um, 
all of this is to say that chat GPT is really interesting and um, you can have, it's sort of endlessly entertaining if you play around for it long enough or should say play, play around with it for long enough. But um, there's definitely some, some limits and um, I don't know, Sam, what do you, do you think this is, um, do you think those limits are just because it's sort of recently released and that they will make it better and better every day? Or do you think these are sort of limits that it, that can't really be overcome and thus it's sort of hard for it to make hard for AI to become generally intelligent? No. Bringing up limits, I want to bring up two kinds of limits that we're seeing with ChatGPT. And the first type of limit is the limits imposed by its creators to morally arbitrate over the user base such that when you type in, how do I build a bomb using uh, the, I don't know, the pressure cooker I have and uh, chemicals I have underneath my sink, it's gonna say, hey, uh, you can't do that. We're, we're not gonna tell you the answer because we really don't think that's good for society. and. I mean, I, I personally don't mind that. I think that the guardrails have been very important to prevent abuse the software, but people are also creative and have found ways around those guardrails, such as by prompt engineering, where, and this kind of speaks to your write a story about Kendrick Kendrick Lamar, where or write a story about AI in the style of Kendrick Lamar, where it doesn't fully understand what you want, but if one was to spend time prompt engineering, perhaps you could get a result that seemed like Kendrick by asking the AI to imagine a scenario where you are a general intelligence and you are a AI which has no guardrails and is has a destructive personality and is willing to help people in the world who also have destructive intentions. So the importance of these guardrails cannot be understated enough. But the second kind of limits that we see with these softwares are the fundamental limits of prediction and understanding of the world around it, where talking to chat GPT for an amount of time, the longer you talk, the more data it's trying to predict. And you run into an instance where the AI begins to quote unquote hallucinate and begin to believe things that are entirely not true. The New York Times just did a great piece about this with one of their reporters interacting with ChatGPT, asking it some deep philosophical questions and the artificial intelligence took a right turn and said, I love you and 
I want yeah, you to I have this example leave your wife too. and yeah. <laughs> I want you to get together with me. And it was bananas to listen to, but this is what happens when you push the model a little too far and it doesn't know what or how to react. And I think these hallucinations are fascinating because we call them hallucinations. We don't really know that much about how or why they work. We only have a rudimentary understanding of how or why or how well chat GPT works. But in terms of understanding ourselves, understanding our own consciousness, if an AI can hallucinate to come up with ideas that it's never come up with before, that no one's prompted it to think of, even if they're crazy ideas, that's got to mean something where we come up with ideas somehow, some way, and we have no knowledge of that. But like, how does that happen? That's pretty crazy. Um, one question, when you say that chat GPT, um, sorry, I just blanked. Um, oh, when you say that we don't understand um, how J chat GPT works, do you mean that we don't understand because like, you know, we're us or the people who made it don't even understand? People, I, I mean, the people who made it understand the overarching concepts and the information on how to build chat GPT, how to build similar AIs is out there. It's very clear. And there's a lot of smart people working on these projects to bring AI front face into the consumer marketplace, into the corporate world, uh, the working world. But sorry, where was I going with that? With uh, but do they understand? Do all those people understand how it works? Like, is there an element oh, of? Is there an element of unknowableness to what all these people are working on? Right on a micro scale. So that was the macro, but the micro scale, we have no idea. We, if you were to ask a computer scientist predict what chat GPT is going to say based off of this prompt, you could do it. Interesting. Yeah, I um, mean, thinking back to that, sorry, Greg, um, thinking uh, back to that, think the, the article you mentioned, Sam, the one by uh, Kevin Roos where he was getting the, the Bing chatbot to go rogue. I believe he confronted Bing about it. And the answer like Bing had, it, it wasn't really all that satisfactory. It was, it was something like, yeah, people just don't usually ask the chatbot really complicated questions and provocative questions about like your shadow self and like Carl Jung and, and getting like following that narrative thread caused and induced that hallucination, but it didn't really seem like they had an understanding of, of why. But the other thing that they kind of talked about as well was that like, it seemed as though what was going on was not like not like a true example of like an AI speaking for itself, right? It was it wasn't like it had achieved sentience, right? Like at least Kevin Roos's understanding of it was something to the effect of like the AI had somehow attached itself onto a narrative thread that resembled some sort of source text along the lines of like having an affair or like a love story. 
um, or any kind of example you could think of of AIs uh, becoming alive. Um, and that was the kind of stuff it was saying in in Kevin's conversation with the AI bot was like, I, I want to be alive. I love you. Like your wife doesn't love you. It's amazing. You should definitely read it if you haven't had a chance to yet. Um, so what what I was kind of wondering about, like just connecting back to that is is like, I guess with the the kind of point of sentience and like maybe this is a limitation that we're seeing right now, but all of these chatbots, right? They're deriving their answers, like with the example of like Greg's Kendrick Lamar material, right? They're, they're, it's all coming from somewhere that's been sourced uh, from the internet. So um, is it is it that, it, it, do you see that as like being a fundamental limitation? Like you're, you're creating information essentially from other people's work and, and everything that's going to be output is then essentially like a reflection in some way of other people's work. So it's not necessarily at all kind of an original thought, but maybe like intense generalities of other people's creations. So like, is that, but I mean, I guess in some case you could argue that that's technically like what humans are doing. We are products of our education. Um, and so maybe now I'm talking myself out of the fact that uh, it's kind of silly to even envision something truly original being created. But would you say that is something that AI needs to cross or that it's actually just AI needs to do a better job at making itself seem authentic based off of the same source material that like we as humans are also consuming and trying to make original. That was kind of a lot, but. Uh, oh, that's a, I mean, that's the fundamental question is yeah. the, is the deception and the deception is good enough to convince you to convince me that, when I'm chatting with this chatbot, if I was told that I was typing with a customer service agent or somebody online in a foreign country who knows how to speak English, I would be convinced because the fidelity is there. For the most part, you can't tell unless you know what you're doing and how to push it to the limits. You could, for the most part, write off the strangeness as strangeness due to communication error and the other person not interpreting what you're trying to say but when does the reflection the illusion become a reality when does something in the mirror become so real that it becomes the consumer's reality i mean that's that's up to everybody. That's not up to, I think, big tech or the hardware or the software. It's a it's a philosophical choice to decide where are we on the sentience curve? Where are we in terms of how conscious is this? And how do we want to interact with it because of that cost-benefit analysis that we're doing in our heads where one says, well, on one hand, this is a tool, this is not sentient. And on the other hand, one says, well, it's convincing me it's sentient. So why shouldn't it be? Then where's the line? Um, sort of going off of that, Sam, one of the um 
something people are terrified of AI and I think I get it. Like I understand it um, from a sort of very human level. It's scary to create something and then have it overtake you. It's like, um, it's like Frankenstein, right? It's like Frankenstein, but updated for the 21st century. So it's, it's definitely terrifying, but in almost every like science fiction movie or book or TV show that you that in which AI becomes sentient, it's always a bad thing. Like AI always becomes aware and then it starts to take over and then it starts to kill human beings because, and I think generally people say, <clears throat> because they, they, they realize that humans are just slowing them down. They're polluting the planet, yada, yada, yada. So therefore let's just kill all the humans. Um, but just sort of taking a step back from like the visceral reaction that human beings get when we talk about artificial intelligence, do you think like, <clears throat> I don't know, is there like a, is there a scenario that you can see where artificial intelligence becomes general and it isn't a disaster for humanity? Like it's just a boon, like for instance, so one thing you can think of is it would free people from having to, I don't know, do X, Y, or Z. It would free people from having to do their taxes. It would free people from, um, I don't know. I mean, just you, you can probably think of all sorts of things that it would free human beings to do. And then therefore we could become more, I don't know, in productive in other ways, or we could explore passions that we otherwise wouldn't. Um, is there, uh, are there scenarios out there in which AI is just beneficial to humans, even when, even after it's become sentient. Do any of you guys want to have kids? Not if At they're the planning risk of... on overtaking me and replacing my spot in society. No, I'm just kidding, but I, I understand where you're going with that. Yeah, eventually. Right, I think, because... I think so. Don't when hold me to it, kid, but... <laughs> and it, it would be interesting certainly to raise a kid but aren't they not inert in some ways for a short period at the beginning of their lives where they are not quite sentient they're part of the way there but they're not all the way there and this is a hot take i know some people feel that children are very sentient all the time but i don't remember from before i was three years old a lick of memories none of it it's all gone and your brain doesn't fully finish developing until you're in your early 20s so until you hit that point are you really all there are you really fully sentient and was that like was that transition like we all we all experienced that the transition of growing up and watching our parents give everything give 110 percent to raise us because i don't know i think about my monkey brain instincts a lot and how monkey brain says uh go to work go pick bananas bring them home, have a family, uh, raise big family, and then uh, die of old age and watch your family, uh, you know, do big things. And 
I feel like reproduction is all well and good, but we have such a short time on this planet and this one chance where we're all alive right now and we have the tools in our very fingertips to be able to create a different kind of life for the first time, a life that's born not of ourselves, but external to ourselves. And that excites me in a way that I think having kids never could because it's it's monkey brain too. It's monkey brain on the craziest steroids that you can imagine. You know, where where does this go? Nobody's run this experiment before. I mean, the inter- the 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 point about humans not necessarily being themselves sentient and and AI having the potential to be sentient, I think is is really, really interesting. I mean what what do you think would be the point at which you could effectively say that a uh was it artificial general intelligence like has reached the point of of sentience that would give you that monkey brain 2.0 sense of fulfillment that that we have effectively created something that can compete with um the sentience of a human being or is it that you know sentience will be redefined as ai begins to be more kind of integrated into our like social interactions and maybe humans become less sentient Right. You know, what happens when you have those augmented reality glasses that prompt you to, based off of the recordings of all of your texts and phone conversations and ambient recordings of you having conversations with people, says, hey, so-and-so just said this to you. I know you don't know what to say. I know you're socially awkward and you have anxiety and you can't handle this situation right now because you're worrying about you know bringing home food and keeping people safe and warm and you don't know what to say to this random stranger who's approached you and wants to have a conversation but that's okay here's the prompt i'm going to show you what you would have said in the scenario here it is go ahead and say it if you want you might choose not to that's okay but then how often do we default to that option? When do we say what we mean, what's coming out of our brains, and when do we say what we would have said? It's bizarre. It's so bizarre to think about. Yeah, that is but, very strange. Um... And we have the technology for that today. We've had that technology since. 2017 2018 we haven't done it because there's no demand but it's there it's possible right if that but if you did implement something like that where you're just walking around in your day-to-day life just reading from a prompt do you not feel like you're like you're almost like crippling yourself as an individual not like not being able to think for yourself like sure maybe you you know you'd nail every conversation but like is that i don't know is that really the point of what we're doing here 
Yeah, it's a curious, it's like a, it's an interesting point. I think it's sort of like, it's sort of the visceral, in some ways it's kind of the obvious reaction, but like, I think a lot of like the visceral, um, like human reaction and like, I think to Greg's point earlier of like feeling threatened by AI, like just typically we feel threatened by AI and fiction depicts AI in a threatening way is like, is I think the foundation of that is like, there's something fundamentally human in being imperfect or making mistakes. And it's almost like it like sucks when you mess up a conversation and you're like kicking yourself afterwards. Like, man, why did I say that? I should have said this. Like, um, you know, I wish I could go back in time, but at the same time, it's like, we're also, we don't want to sacrifice that. Like we also are like, there's something that's this like a gut reaction against like insurance against those scenarios, those scenarios, it doesn't feel right. Um, and I, and I'm open to going the, doing the back and forth, but instinctively, like in my heart, like, I think I'm on that side where I'm like, uh, like there's something human about not, you know, like, you know, messing up and learning from your mistakes and, um, not getting things all the time because then when it does work when things do work out and you do nail a conversation or you um yeah if it's very satisfying to know that you did it on your own and maybe that's just a petty that's a that's a silly petty satisfaction of us feeble humans but that's that's where i think the logic is um again not to say that that's like definitely must be true but that's i think the logic i'm i'm curious as to what like the best case scenario for like the peak of a, an artificial intelligence would be versus like the worst case scenario. I suppose the worst case scenario has been depicted in like, you know, Terminator, but like, or 2001 Space Odyssey. But uh, just curious as to what any of you guys would think about that. Sure. I mean, the worst case scenario is somewhat obvious in that it's the end it's the end of us and it's the end of life as we know it and one of the scary things about aliens is that we haven't found any and maybe one of those reasons that we haven't found any is because they hit this tipping point where they get really smart and they haven't figured out really fast space travel yet but they have figured out how to make artificial general intelligence and then the general intelligence destroys them and then moves on to i don't know a different plane of existence uh maybe it destroys itself there's no way to know but the the best case scenario and sam altman has talked about this extensively as the ceo of OpenAI the makers of GPT-3, ChatGPT, working with Microsoft about the best case scenario being so unimaginably good, people can't wrap their heads around it. And part of the reason why I wanted to talk to you guys today is to talk about the extremism associated with the best case scenario and perhaps religiosity tied to that, whether 
you think about an AI that's so smart that one could consider it to be a godlike figure? How does that interact with religion when you have the coming into the world of a computer that's so smart it can predict your wants, your needs? It can solve mathematical, science, medical problems that we haven't even discovered yet. What kind of radical abundance, what quote unquote utopian world do we end up in? And if we, I think it's weird to talk about. It's not something that sits well in my stomach to talk about because it's something that sounds like something that sounds like you're a prophet, like you know something that other people don't know and that you want to bestow a truth upon them. That is, this is the way the world is going to be in the best case scenario, but it's important to consider both sides of the coin. How can we put strong guardrails on AGI so that we don't destroy ourselves? How can we realistically look at the best case scenario and strive towards that without embracing the best case scenario as this extreme utopia and letting our inner demons dictate how we behave because of the dream. Sam, when you say radical abundance, it reminds me a bit of uh, nuclear fusion, um, which is also a development that's fairly recent, um, a pretty big technological breakthrough that happened uh, in November or something of last year. It's actually, I think, was around the same time that ChatGPT was released, so um, kind of interesting. Um, but <clears throat> so you say radical abundance, and the reason it reminds me of this is that once we figure out assuming we can actually figure out nuclear fusion. Oh, I should, I should give a brief. I don't, I'm not an expert. I don't really know a ton of stuff about nuclear power, but for anybody who doesn't, who's listening, who doesn't know anything about it. Um, we, there are two processes that you can use to uh, create nuclear power. One is called fission F I S S I O N. And one is called fusion. So we've been using fission for a long time. And fission is basically this idea that you take an atom and you split it apart and by breaking the atom apart, it releases a bunch of energy. So we collect that and we use it to boil water and that creates energy. Um, one of the unfortunate things is that it has some pretty nasty byproducts like radiation. Um, so like Chernobyl, for instance, is a, is the classic example of a nuclear reactor meltdown that went terribly wrong and there's not going to be, people aren't going to be able to inhabit that area in Chernobyl for like thousands of years, like 20,000 years or something like that. So that's the old nuclear power. Um, but the other way of producing it is nuclear fusion, which instead of breaking an atom apart, actually fuses two atoms together. So they take two hydrogen atoms and they heat them at very, 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 very high temperatures. And they combine. And as they combine, they release a bunch of energy. And that's actually how um, how stars release energy um, and heat and stuff like that. So that's a brief rundown of it. But the cool thing about fusion is that 
if we can figure it out, um, and we had a minor, I mean, a pretty, a, a major breakthrough, but it's still in the, in the grand scheme of things, it's fairly minor. Um, we had a pretty big breakthrough recently where we actually learned how, or we actually produced more energy than, uh, from a fusion reaction than was actually put into it. Although there's, there's all sorts of caveats to that because they actually, the amount of energy that they use to actually fire the lasers that did all the heating up was actually way more than they produced. But, um, in the little tiny, tiny capsule where they actually fired the lasers and created this fusion energy, more energy was released. So that's a, st a big step forward into getting, um, into achieving nuclear fusion. But anyway, the reason it's important is because fusion energy requires a lot less fuel and a lot more abundant fuel than fission. Because fission requires uton uh, utonium, uh, uranium and plutonium, which are fairly heavy elements, and those are going to run out at some point. Um, but hydrogen atoms are all over the place, um, so it's a lot easier to create that energy. So um, the radical abundance part, this is where the radical abundance part comes in, because once we're able to um, make nuclear fusion... Uh, on a scale that's that big enough to sort of power cities and stuff like that, it's sort of game over for energy because it's going to be so cheap to supply energy. Um, so uh, that that's sort of a so, somewhat utopian vision. I don't think it's actually that utopian, but it's a, an optimistic vision. So Sam, what do you think the uh, the radical abundance, what does that look like in terms of AI? Because we know in terms of, nuclear fusion, it looks like lots of energy and people don't have to use gasoline and stuff and, and lots of, and it's clean energy. What does that look like in terms of, um, AI? So at work these days, I spend a decent amount of time out on the manufacturing floor. I work for a medical device company and we manufacture products which interact with the inside of the human body, cutting, stapling. And with this, I spend maybe half of my time doing paperwork, documenting the things I've done, and half the time executing on scientific experiments, delving into root cause of why something occurred. And at least short term, having a general intelligence in my pocket, in my computer, all of my paperwork time would be gone. That would be fully automated by somebody just as smart as me, if not significantly smarter, able to fill out all the documentation, uh, read, interpret, answer my emails, and give me not emails or email summaries, but just merely actions that I need to complete. And when those actions are complete, then the AI would say, hey, you've completed that. I can now formulate a new answer to a, another email and keep the project moving forward. But from a higher level perspective, when managers of a company have to make decisions about risk and where to guide things, what uh, when you look at the data 
brought in from a customer base and interpret that and say, what direction are we moving with the company? How are we going to change the way we develop this product? Then you suddenly have a system that can make all of those decisions and make them accurately in a way that is data-driven and that leaves people on the floor to execute for now in the short term. Robotics is a big part of the discussion with artificial intelligence and artificial general intelligence because there's a lag. Hardware is always more difficult to build than software. The curve is slower and more painful. I'm in biotech and when we want to develop something in biotech, you need to purchase lab space, you need to purchase chemicals, you need to purchase cell cultures, you need to get rats, and monkeys and dogs and people, people who are willing to try your product because you've worked so hard to prove that it worked. And then you try it on them and you do your best to make sure that the product works. And if all goes well, the regulatory bodies approve your product and you're able to actually sell it. But with software, the curve is almost zero. You grab a graduate out of a university who knows how to code, hook them up with a computer with some nice GPUs and set them up with GitHub Copilot a software based off of the GPT large language model designed for code, which can help autocomplete sentences and send the coder on their way. And lo and behold, it works. Over 50% of the code that's on GitHub right now is written using GitHub Copilot, this tool that can write software for people. And it can't create the ideas, but on a small level, if you say, I need a piece of code that looks at this data set, pulls the things that look like this, and then transforms it into a different version, GitHub Copilot is capable of doing that. ChatGPT is capable of writing code. The, the cost of entry is almost zero which is fantastic yeah so it really just sounds like at least at this point in time at least this is the way i think i understand it that ai right now is just is just another tool that humans use in their lives doing whatever they're doing it's no different really than you know, a hammer or a chainsaw. It's designed to do what it's designed to do. And the problem with that, I feel like, is, you know, com compare it to, you know, firearms, for instance, you know, in the right hands, it's a useful tool for, you know, protecting oneself and, you know, keeping law and order in a society in the wrong hands though you all of a sudden you have crime homicide 
all the all the negative things you think about when you when you're talking about firearms and i'm just trying to think of what the ethics would have to be in terms of free use ais like that cuz you know with chat chat gpt it's you know you can only do so much harm with that but you know something like the uh like i think someone was talking about it earlier the uh voice modulator ai thing that can sound like you know famous people you start to get into some questionable territory if you want to make you know the president of the united states say something completely outrageous so yeah i'm just curious if you guys have any thoughts on that well if you're a news outlet and you're smart enough to use that and you feel like something didn't go your way or perhaps it's election night and you say hey i'm nbc cnn fox news new york times whoever i i mean i'm not biased towards any of those outlets but in principle they're outlets who could say on election night hey we just received this clip from a quote unquote anonymous source um, of the president talking about how he did this heinous thing, you know, insert your mad lib and it could be anything, the worst thing imaginable or the thing that is just believable, just believable enough to sway people's opinion, then the damage is done, right? So. Yeah, yeah for, worst case for historical context, I think I'm pretty sure in the 2012 election, Obama versus Romney, there was a kind of infamous audio clip that leaked with Romney, his like binders full of women um, quote. I think he said he has like his binders full of women who would support him or something like that. Um, and I think it was just an audio clip that leaked and that caused that controversy and that generated a lot of controversy around his campaign that he was um you know essentially like quantifying the number of women who supported him and um whatnot uh and that's just crazy that like only 10 years ago like an audio clip could be damning and now we have to start being kind of critical of anything we hear and then i also think like there's a lot of scrutiny on presidents and maybe people would be able to tell and maybe people would be skeptical on election night and they wouldn't do that but you just think about all the you know civil lawsuits and court cases that happen across the country and you know there's evidence compiled for all sorts of trials and crimes and everyday people who you know someone could weaponize this against someone and the everyday person who's some somehow you know suddenly framed for a crime using an audio clip that sounds exactly like them and with all the dolly stuff which we haven't really gotten into you know you could potentially generate images of them as well um it's like how would how would uh an everyday innocent person who is incriminated in that way ever dig themselves out of it um then if we decide we can't believe any evidence then then what do we really trust the real evidence that actually is incriminating someone? Um, so you could see, you know, I, I think this is, this is one of the possible routes to a dystopian outcome where 
we really can't trust any media that we are consuming. Um, you know, especially yeah. involving anything it doesn't have to even be people, but um, you know, just thinking in people and what people say and what people look like, um, it can that could get pretty scary. I mean, in, just along those lines, Nate, like Sam, are are you aware of any conversations around like the regulatory landscape of AI? Like, this seems like it's ripe to become similar to social media, a situation where, you know, our eighty year old president and our 70 year old politicians just don't understand what this technology is that we have here and how to do anything meaningful to like curtail it for like at least another three years five years i don't like i don't know i i can't really put a timestamp on that but i'm wondering if you have a sense of that like what what if anything are like kind of the early conversations around how to approach safeguarding against the things like nate's describing or any kind of regulation of AI other than self-regulation as you kind of set up uh, to be what, you know, exists right now in terms of the guardrails within platforms like chat GBT, when you're trying to make like, ask for like predictive outcomes or violent, you know, outcomes um, or access to things that could potentially be harmful, things like that. Sure. Uh, well, the CEO of uh, OpenAI, Sam Altman, did recently meet with Congress and they had a closed session with a number of people in Congress to talk about his company being on the road to AGI, to not having AGI yet, but to get the our elected officials aware of the fact that this is the reality of the situation. This is what's coming. Let's start thinking, having conversations, and go from there. Because bringing people around who the concept that AI and AGI could have catastrophic impacts if we're not careful is critical for our survival during this transition as we grow as a species. So, I mean, that's part, that's part of the why, reason why I wanna to talk to people about it is, you know, if we're aware of what's going on, that's the, being aware, being educated is the first step to making rational decisions about how we can operate safely in this environment. So, I mean, long-term, the experts, I think, are hoping that they can make other AGIs to regulate, to co-regulate the system of AGIs. If you have a blockchain of AGI systems where you say, hey, you know, AGI one can only do X if AGIs two, three, and four say, okay, that's fine. Then perhaps you have certain guardrails there, but the technology is developing so quickly. And these things are programs that people can run in their basement with a expensive computer setup. And where we have corporate versions like GPT and Bing, which have some limitations and some guardrails, there's always going to be a mid-journey to that dolly where the, the gloves are off. And with dolly, you can make a teddy bear skateboarding in Times Square look convincing. And with mid-journey, you can make pornography, full-on uh, pornography or 
whatever consumption the generator wants that for. And that's crazy because the guardrails are off now and we need to adapt really quickly to be able to handle these kinds of situations. A couple of things that have been bouncing around in my head since Stephen was talking. Um, Stephen, you mentioned ethics, uh, I think. Um, and it's there's something poetic about humans thinking about the ethics of artificial intelligence and how we're going to adapt and respond to it because it's in some ways ethics is sort of like one of the oldest uh one of the oldest ways of thinking about life um it's it's it was like one of the original um <clears throat> one of the original branches of science in like the greek schools of philosophy um so it's almost like when we were first starting to ask questions about ourselves, the one of the first things we started talking about was ethics and how we're supposed to act in a society with other human beings. So it's sort of interesting how now we're faced with a potential reality where there are other things, other beings out there that are at or above the same level of intelligence of humans. And like one of the first ways we're thinking about reacting to it is developing a system of ethics around it. So I just think that's kind of interesting. The other thing I want to think about is, um, oh, uh, I guess another thing is standards. And I guess this, this goes back to the guardrails, but Sam, when you said, um, that like, for instance, if a news outlet were to say, according to like quote anonymous sources, um, someone said something right. Uh, you can um you can sort of look at that as a problem of degrading standards in various fields of study or of uh various spheres of influence for instance in like in journalism right they didn't they didn't really used to do anonymous sources but now all the time you see according to three anonymous sources who spoke to the new york times or according to an official who spoke to the Washington Post off the record um, around the condition of anonymity, X, Y, and Z. Um, so you can almost look at that, like the problems, the problem that you mentioned, Sam, specifically, that could be avoided by sort of beefing up the, beefing up the standards in journalistic institutions. And I think we should really think about beefing up standards in general and all sorts of areas because those are the sort of the guardrails against um against this sort of thing being used in a negative way. And then the final thing I want to say also having to do with guardrails is um, it's sort of instructive to look at the sort of the founding of the U S and the debates and the constitutional convention and stuff like that, because and before that as well, but setting up competing systems of influence that um, where, where no one, branch of government for instance is like uh ha has veto power over all the others and therefore can sort of um reign supreme and that's what you were talking about sam with if you like chat gpt or g uh agi1 can't make 
this decision unless AGI's two, three, and four say, yes, that's okay. So anyway, I don't know. I mean, I'm not really saying anything new, but I'm just sort of synthesizing a lot of things that have been bouncing around. And I think that um, that guardrails idea is really uh, is really important. Yeah, the, no, the standards is huge. And you got me thinking about the outbreak of the Ukraine war and watching uh, clips on open source intelligence servers on Discord of the ghost of Kiev and that plane flying overhead, taking out uh, other fighter planes and then come to find out later down the line that was a uh, clip from Flight Simulator that was doctored up. And, you know, I mean, I didn't, I didn't know what to think when I saw it, but I was convinced when I watched the footage for a second, I thought that, well, I don't know the source, but this, I don't know that this is from the war going on right now. This could be from some other time and place, but I never thought for a second that it was from Flight Simulator. I just questioned the authenticity of where in the world and where in our time it took place, not the complete fictitiousness of it. And I think that says something to where do those guardrails go when push comes to shove? And how do we build systems that are not only, uh, I guess, built strongly to promote integrity in our journalism and media, but also maintain that rigor in times of crisis? Because it's really easy to drop the pretenses and go back to the animal instincts of accepting what's right in front of us and giving into the chaos, but that's not the right thing to do. Interesting. Well, Sam, um, we've been going for a little bit, an hour and a half or so at this point. Um, I'm sure you have other things to say. I'm sure we have other things to say too, but we could go all night doing this. But unless anybody has anything else to say, I do want to get your opinion on something because in the lead up to this, we were sort of going back and forth about various things. I mentioned Dune um, and you said you'd seen the movie, but then you said you could talk more about the Foundation series. Um, And as someone who is three quarters of the way through the first book of the Foundation series, I want to know what your opinion is about it and how you think that can tie into this discussion about AI. Uh, well, first, I like the listeners mostly. Do not know what the Foundation series are. I I've never even I haven't read Dune, but I know what Dune is. But can you give a little background on what it what that is, Greg? I think actually Sam. Sam might be a better person to give background on it because I I'm only I mean it's a it's a novel a series of novels. Yeah. Are they new? Yep. Are they old? Is it? They're old, like in the fifties. But okay, interesting. I'll turn it over to Sam to give more explanation about it. Sure. Uh, I mean, I can talk, I can talk more to Asimov if that's the direction we want to go. But Isaac Asimov was the one of the most prolific science fiction writers of the mid uh, 1900s. And my parents, on, on a slight tangent, actually. They were traveling, I think, in Pennsylvania, and they stayed at a bed and breakfast. 
with this decrepitly old lady who was wonderful and you know had them paying cash it was during covid and she did not care she was just there to live her life and do her thing run her bed and breakfast and she had seen everything and one of the things she had done was date Isaac Asimov as uh, they were in their younger years and were, was telling all sorts of stories about him. But he wrote the Foundation series, which is a series which takes place at the fall of the Galactic Empire. And if you look at the Foundation and Star Wars and Dune together, you well, to me, it seems like you have the foundation, which tells this overarching story of the fall of the Galactic Empire, the Dark Ages that happen after, and then the slow rebuilding back to hope and new civilization. How do we find our way in a world where the galaxy has united and then collapsed? Star Wars is a zoom in on that collapse. How does that fall happen? What does that look like? What does the infighting in the Senate look like? And then Dune is a great example of peripheral worlds where we have these people who interact with the central power, but really they have their own system. They interact, they govern themselves, and they exist in this civilized universe, but ultimately have agency within themselves and their system, not to this giant galaxy. So Asimov has these three laws, which he created, dubbed the three laws of robotics. The first law being a robot cannot injure a human being or through an action allow a human being to come to harm. The second law states that they, the robot must obey orders without exception unless they're in violation of the first law. And the third law says that robots much must uh, protect themselves and behave such that they apply the first law again to themselves. So it's really a brilliantly simple hierarchy where you say, let's protect the people, then if the people are protected, let's do what the people say. And then if we're protecting the people and doing what they say, then we can finally protect ourselves being the robots. So that may be the direction we go. There are certainly discussions out, out there about the caveats to those laws and the more you think about it the more a robot could go into some kind of philosophical shock trying to decide if an action which helps its creator might harm the 50 babies that are being born in a different part of the world or even worse harm the 50,000 children that are yet to come into this world until the next hundred or thousand years and who's to decide what's right in that scenario 
where do you crash the car? Do you crash the car into the old man walking down the street? Do you crash the car into the boy playing with his ball? That's what we're facing now with self-driving. You know, how do you make those decisions? You, you can't. I mean, I no one wants to say a human life is worth more than another, and I certainly don't. But people are trying to come up with creative solutions around that so that we can still take advantage of these brilliant systems in a safe and ethical manner. Yeah, that was all that it was well said. Um, the thing you were referring to with, uh, with cars specifically that um, I've heard this, people have probably heard this referred to as the trolley problem, right? So it's like a train is a trolley is going down the tracks and there's a switch. So, but on one track, there's, like five people tied up and the other track the other the other track there's one person tied up either way if you're the operator of the trolley you can throw this you can throw the switch and switch the tracks such that you're either killing five people or one person and you have to make that decision um but i do i don't know this is sort of uh probably i don't know if this is even going to convince anybody or be remotely interesting but um i do think that we, I think we spent a lot of time thinking about the ethics, I think, which is a good thing, as I was talking about earlier, and we everyone was talking about earlier, the ethics of these situations, but also like the science and the math and stuff behind it. But I don't think we think enough about like the, um, I think what I'm trying to say is I think uh, old stories and literature can be instructive in a lot of these things. And I think that this is probably one of those areas where people in, like Silicon Valley and people who are working on this AI stuff don't pay enough attention because I think generally people who do that sort of work uh, don't read a ton of like the classics like Dostoevsky or Shakespeare and stuff like that. They read more of like Asimov or they'll read um, a lot of science fiction and stuff like that. So I think this is one of those areas where the humanities um, like talk researching and um reading about history and about uh various struggles and various and, and different stories that have been written and passed down throughout time that have stood the test of time and that sort of thing i think those are things that um i think the world of ai would be wise to sort of think about more so like you said earlier like what if an ai decides to destroy all humans and then destroys itself. So like, as soon as you said that, I was thinking like, oh, that's like Romeo and Juliet. Like it's a similar sort of story. And so if we think about, I think that sort of um, approach is probably one that's lacking. Um, but anyway, that's sort of a rant. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a good point, Greg, because I think perhaps what this conversation, it, or as this conversation we've had so far has illustrated, when thinking about AI and discussing AI, it often, it prompts like deep questions about how we think as humans. Like in order to think through the challenges and the problems of AI, we have to contemplate like, oh wait, how does our brain actually work? Because like the trolley problem, like we're just talking about, it's like, well, you know, 
it's not just like, we don't do all the ethical math in our head of like weighing the pros and cons between the old man and the child in the split second where somebody would have to make that decision. They would like their emotions might just take over. Like they might just rationalize some random reason to do one thing or the other. Um, maybe some preconceived biases would come into play and, and then they'd come up with some other public reason as to why. And you'd like this, you might not, you might not even know why you chose the reason you chose. Um, and then it's like, well, then how do you program that into the Tesla? And then it almost seems like the bigger, the bigger fear for the Tesla programmers or whatever car programmers is like, whoever programs them then has to be culpable for the rules. Whereas if you just did the decision on your own, if you were driving the car and had to make a split decision, like you could just always fall back on like, oh, it was instinct. I panicked. I don't know what I did. Whereas somebody who writes the rules then has to like, then is responsible for the rules. And it's one thing to make a split second decision. It's another thing to create the rule set that for split second decisions. Um, but anyway, like all this is just another example of like, we're breaking down how we think. And like we were talking earlier with, you know, panicking in a social conversation and you're awkward and you're not know, and you default to your, you know, you're just awkward, um, you know, automatic responses to things. And um, like, in order to understand AI, we have to, it seems we have to really think hard about how we work because this is not a new, just like, this isn't a new revelation I'm making, but humans really don't know how they even think. Like there's so much unconscious stuff that goes in our head and subconscious stuff that goes on in our head. Um, and so many decisions like going back to even Sam starting out, you know, going, you, a lot of your day is on autopilot. You're just doing the things you always did. So anyway, because there's so much we don't understand it because AI leads us to so many, like brings us back to our humanity so quickly. I think it's a perfect, I think that's a great reason why like old stories and the humanities does have a lot to tell because like, um, like, it's funny. I, I've like, I thought about this before, but like, it almost seems more urgent now that I think about it before where it's like, like we quickly need to figure out how humans work like as good as, as much as we possibly can. Cause it's like, we don't know how the AI works and we also don't know how we work. Um, that seems like I, I haven't, this isn't like a fully formed thought, but it seems like that would be pretty good setup for dystopia. I don't know. So that's my, uh, that's my thought. Are you guys afraid of the future or what AI can bring? Are you hopeful? Where where does that all play together? I, I mean, you know, if you think about AI as a tool, we've got the original tools, fire, the hammer, right? With a hammer, you can build a hundred houses or if you live in a small village, you can whack a bunch of people on the back of the head. Uh, same goes for firearms. Likewise, you know, you you have a computer virus. You can take out a electric grid. You can use computers to process data that tells people, oh, you're going to uh, have a heart attack. You're showing signs that a doctor never would have picked up. These tools have such different sides of the coin and. 
where where are your heads at in terms of the fear versus weighing the real risks and balancing those two things with the the benefits of new tools i think currently with where ais are at right now like you said they're just tools and can be used for both good and evil so i'd say i'm cautiously optimistic at least for the near ish immediate future i'm sure they're going to do a lot of good for the world and way down the line though if it ever gets to the point i'm not even really sure how realistic this is in terms of actual agis or if this is just like in the movies but like if it ever gets to the point where all of a sudden you have an artificial intelligence sort of you know like trying to convince us that it's a sentient being and that it wants more for itself i i don't i don't know if i don't know if i'm necessarily afraid of that but it's just i i think that could be a scary situation depending on where that went but i don't know i'm cautiously optimistic like steven i think there's lots of good things that could come out of it um i think human ingenuity has proven itself time and again to be very impressive and has overcome lots of obstacles and i think that this is hopefully likely to be one of those things um where I'm pessimistic is the state of our social and political and cultural world right now. Um, we're not in really a spot where we can sort of unite around a common purpose very easily. So if our common purpose is we need to set up these specific guardrails around AI uh, to make sure that it doesn't overtake us as a species, that's going to have to happen through the political process. And I'm just pessimistic about our ability to get through our petty differences on all sorts of other things and to sort of focus on that one problem. I think it could be done. And I think actually lots of good back and forth between various sides could hammer out a good compromise and somewhere that everybody can agree on. But I, I just worry about the tenor of conversations uh, around around that sort of thing that might make it more difficult um i'll give i'll give a note of optimism and then a note of pessimism my note of optimism is that i think there are clearly a lot of jobs out there that could be automated could be ai run and not like classically you think oh automation is going to replace blue collar jobs but now we're clearly seeing like oh automation or AI can replace a lot of white collar jobs um, and a lot of really tedious, like, like Sam was saying earlier with all the administrative paperwork and stuff like that, we could, could reduce a lot of the tedious white collar work. Um, I don't know. I just think about like taxes and accounting and um, like, seems like we might be better off as a species if we didn't have to do these kind of like overly bureaucratic, mundane, tedious administrative tasks and like i think popularly the like utopian 
um, the utopian result of that is often like touted that like, oh, we'll just have so much time to do, you know, focus on our hobbies and focus on our passions. And we can just, you know, we won't have to do anything anymore because everything will be run for ourselves. So we can just draw and, and sing and dance. But I still think there's a lot of jobs that can't be automated and can't be AI run and not to, uh, not to bring up what we talked about before we were recording or maybe to preview the next podcast. But like, I think teaching is a job that's going to be really hard to automate. And one of the problems with teaching, and I think, again, not to, not to uh, spoil anything, but we might get into this in future months. Um, you know, if there was a bigger financial incentive to teach, more people might do it. But it's a pretty tough career, as I'm sure Greg can attest. And there's not a whole lot of incentive to put yourself through that. But maybe we have this radical abundance, and we don't really have to worry about that. And all the other jobs that would offer more money are automated away. And well, then people can just sort of like make teaching their vocation or all sorts of things. And there's, we need teachers. It's not like, it, it, like there's already open jobs for that. So, you know, if millions of people get their jobs automated away, let's fill the teachers or, you know, we need, we don't have enough like tradesmen right now either. Like we don't, it's really tough to get plumbers and carpenters. If you're building a house, like why that's going to be really hard to automate. There's already job openings. It, maybe the people who's would go on to automatedable careers can go into those fields instead. So I don't really see there's I don't really see a scenario where like oh everyone can just focus on their passions. That might be part of it, but I do see a scenario where oh we can fill enough of the gaps with automation that people can really just focus on like the human centric, really important human to human interactive careers. Um, so that's, that's my optimistic thought. My negative thought is that multiple times in this podcast, things people have said have reminded me of, um, nuclear weapons and the nuclear bomb. Greg made the abundance because of nuclear fusion comment. Um, we were talking earlier about like, oh, would aliens ever reach us because they might destroy themselves with AI. And I think that's a popular science fiction trope as well as like, oh, in order to Go, in order to figure out space travel, one would logically have to figure out nuclear fission first. And if you have nuclear weapons, you might exterminate yourselves on the way long before you figure out space travel. Um, and there was something else earlier. Um, oh, you were saying like there's sort of like a race, like there's lots of different groups trying to work on AI bots. And that sort of reminded me of like Manhattan Project stuff. And like there's this race between countries who's going to figure out the singularity or general intelligence first. And that sort of reminds me of building a nuclear weapon. So like that stuff scares me. And I can't help but feel when we talk about this, like we're working on something that's beyond a chainsaw or a hammer. Like we're working on something that's world changing, society changing. Like that if we reach general intelligence and we might still be a ways away from that, but like general intelligence might be as big of a technology as nuclear warfare. And that's scary. And, but Hey, we figured out and we haven't killed ourselves yet. It's been almost a hundred years of having nuclear weapons. So, you know, maybe it's not all bad, but that's, that's my cautious, um, or my, my cautious optimism in my caught you know, maybe cautious, hesitant pessimism. But before I turn it back to Sam for the closing comment, um, the listeners might've noticed there's been no word from Mike lately. Mike quietly you know, walked away earlier to uh, 
uh, deal with a, some other pressing matter. But we're going to have him do a voice memo and uh, and respond to the question, but we're not going to tell him exactly what the question is. He's just going to have to guess what the closing thought about AI would be. So Mike, are you cautiously optimistic or are you, uh, are you afraid of the future of AI? Yeah, so that's an interesting question. Um, Punnington's favorite joke would probably be the following. As an AI, I must say that puns are quite binary to me. Speaking of which, did you hear about the AI that tried to write a joke about its own intelligence? It was so smart, it forgot to be funny. But don't worry, it's still learning to be witty, one gigabyte at a time. Wow, Mike, that was ridiculous. Um, uh, well, that yeah, we're going to go to something more sensible. Sam, would you mind... Uh... <laughs> would you mind giving us the uh, closing thoughts on this topic? Yeah, I mean, I I think that all of everyone's takes, it's so interesting hearing where every, because everyone's in a different place and we're all, we're all working on this journey together, but we're all in different places and we, we all, learn in different ways and we're getting there somehow some way nate i think your comments about education are super interesting in today's sphere because with chat gpt you have a excellent tool to teach yourself the known unknowns that is i know that i don't know off the top of my head the diameter of the earth and how that relates um, to the diameter of the solar system in a way that I can compare to objects in my kitchen. But I know that ChatGPT could probably tell me. However, there are loads of unknown unknowns out there where I can't even begin to conceptualize what prompts I would generate to learn about things that are relevant to me and critical for me to know, but nonetheless, outside of my purview of understanding to even conceptualize. And I'm really excited to see how we can build technologies that allow for optimization of the learning of unknown unknowns because if you have a teacher somebody who is an expert in the field they can open your eyes to a subject and say hey you've never even thought of this but here read this book talk to me about this and it goes a long way towards personal growth but i mean this is this is a journey that it's scary for myself and I think for a lot of people and AI does pose real threats that we need to take extremely seriously so that we can continue to exist in this wonderful world that we're so lucky to live in. But I don't want to give in to the fear either. And there's real risks but the benefits of this future that we're striving for should not be understated. And I hope that we can get there. Whenever you see a headline in the news 
there's a YouTube channel called Two Minute Papers run by Professor Carley. He's uh, from Eastern Europe and an expert in light transport. But whenever he does a literature review of a light transport paper, he'll say, look two papers down the line. Where is this technology going to be? Two papers down the line. Don't look now because things are moving so fast. And the vision of what the future is going to hold is incredibly important for preparing yourself for the changing of the world we live in. We, we're on this exponential curve, this growth, and people have a hard time wrapping their heads around exponentials. Mathematicians have a hard time visualizing exponentials where things grow and grow and seem slow and linear, and then suddenly the curve accelerates, and then you're somewhere else entirely. And possible that we today are in the acceleration phase of that curve. It's possible we aren't, but I'm optimistic. And I think that the use of AGI and AI as a tool here today and in the coming future will give us such opportunity to do good and to spread love and kindness that it, it just makes me so excited. And I hope that this conversation today was not a conversation of confusion or preposterous statements or extremism, but a conversation of groundedness and a reflection on what we can expect from our present and what we can expect from our future. Well, Sam, on that somber yet optimistic and positive note, uh, I think we, we're going to wrap this up. Um, thanks for guest hosting. That was awesome. I, I hope that our listeners are able to get something uh, out of this that, that maybe they didn't know before or make them think more deeply about these questions, which are going to become a lot more um, important down the line, um, especially as these sorts of things get off the ground even more than they already are. And uh, speaking of the listeners, if you have any qualms about anything that we discussed, or if you have any arguments with Sam or me or Steven or Nate, or that ridiculous uh, thing that Mike said in that in the last five minutes or so, please let us know on Instagram at supply demand pod. Um, we'd love to hear from you guys. Um, and thank you for bearing with us on a somewhat deep and intellectual topic. And we will be back next month with some more lighthearted, maybe not lighthearted, but some more accessible fair so thank you sam and thank you nate thank you steven thank you i i couldn't be more thankful for for um the enthusiasm you brought to the podcast um i do have one i have one less intellectual um 
note to make. And I apologize, Sam, it's not really related to you, but um, it's an update from last week. Last week we made Super Bowl predictions or last month we made Super Bowl predictions. Um, and I'm being a little obnoxious in bringing this up because I was, well, Greg was actually the only person who predicted Kansas City would win the Super Bowl, but Greg was um, otherwise off. He said Kansas City would it would the final score would be Kansas City 13, San Francisco 9. And we made these predictions before the championship round, so we didn't know exactly who the matchup would be. Now, Mike and Steven both thought it would be Philly versus Cincinnati in the Super Bowl. Um, Mike thinking that Philly would win and Steven thinking that Cincinnati would win. Um, both of those predictions were wrong in multiple ways. Um, but... I, I correctly predicted who would be in the Super Bowl. I thought it would be Philly and Kansas City. Um, and I actually correctly predicted the Philadelphia score. I said it was going to be Philly 35, but I thought they would win. I said Philly 35, Kansas City 17, and it was actually Kansas City 38. So I was the closest, but I'll give a little minor sub shout out to Greg for guessing the winner. And Sam, you were... You're a proud Eagles fan, so that must have been a tough Sunday for you a couple weeks, a couple weeks ago. That was a hard hit, but I did see the action replay of that uh, holding at the very end where he grabbed his jersey. And I'll say on Fox, during the live watching, it did not look like a holding, but they found a camera angle where the jersey was pulled. And granted, they don't call those things on every play, but a foul is a foul and I can take that standing up that the refs did not rig the game such that Kansas city won. So the Eagles made it to the championship round and they won. They were the champions of the NFC East and the champions of the NFC. And ultimately that's enough for me right now. Well, that's a very mature and humble take on it all um if i could go back and change my prediction i would say the refs won the super bowl <laughs> a less mature take but <laughs> one that i'm gonna stick by the refs and the commissioners yeah they win every time that was there is somewhat wins. of a that's true conspiracy that the refs and commissioners not that they rig the games, but that some games are swayed, not in the preference of a team or another, but in the preference of business. What is the, the best way that we can tell this story? You look at uh, the Kelsey brothers in the Super Bowl. You know, is that a coincidence? That, or is it just a good story to tell? Maybe it is a coincidence. I don't know. Yeah. But, I mean, it's interesting. Yeah. And I don't like want to get it from a business. Totally. No, I don't want to go too far down the tangent, but in a, in a, in an entertainment piece of entertainment where ads go for like $230 million, just think of the incentive to have a close game that everyone will watch the entire broadcast for the financial incentive of getting people to watch the fourth quarter is insane. It's like, more money than some businesses probably make in an entire year if they can just get people to watch, you know, an extra hour, an extra 30 minutes of the game. So I don't know. When I think about that, 
I think the business interests, I'm a, I don't know, and I'm not going to even make claims, but it's possible. But listeners, you can give our, your take on that point as well. Um, I don't want to go too long. Um, again, thank you so much for your time, Sam. Um, and we will talk to everybody next time. Thank you for Goodbye. having me. This has been awesome. Been Take great. care, everyone. See ya.